the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finn. We've got a great show for you today. In this half hour, we'll be doing a rebroadcast with Jennifer Kaplan, who wrote a book called Funny, You Don't Look Funny. It was a great book, great interview. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. In the second half hour, we're going to do some in-depth, but of course entertaining, analysis of the double portion of Chukas Balak. This is, it doesn't get more Bible story than this stuff. This is like the real good Bible story stuff. We've got wonderful music scattered throughout the show. A really poignant and thought-provoking Hasidic story all the way at the end. Before we do anything else... Let's go right to the news. At least four people were murdered in a terrorist shooting attack at a gas station in central Israel. Another five Israelis were wounded in a nearby restaurant before the terrorist was killed. In response, settlers in the West Bank rioted, setting cars and fields on fire, one Palestinian was killed in the riots and 12 wounded. The Israeli government condemned the riots. Israeli helicopter gunships struck targets in the Jenin area after a deadly gun battle. The strike came after five Palestinian gunmen after five Palestinian gunmen were killed, 90 wounded and seven Israeli soldiers were wounded during clashes during a counter-terrorist raid. Four terrorists were shot and killed by a drone after the men shot at IDF checkpoints. 
In other news, a Moscow court rejected an appeal for Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovitz, who must remain in jail on espionage charges until at least August 30th. Gershkovich is the son of Jewish refugees from the Soviet Union and has been in Russia's Leftovka, I should practice these names before I actually come online, right? Leftovka prison since last March. He is being held on charges of espionage at the Wall Street Journal of the United States, and he denied. FBI agents close to home arrested a 19-year-old Michigan man who was accused of planning a mass killing in a synagogue in East Lansing. This is credible stuff, considering that the, uh, the very intelligent young man posted what he was doing on Instagram. The shooter of the Tree of Life synagogue was convicted on all 63 counts in what took less than an hour. The judge must now decide his future. And finally, for the first time in the 70, its 77-year history, the U.N. Security Council unanimously passed a resolution that explicitly condemns anti-Semitism. About time. The resolution was drafted by the United Arab Emirates, which has become a major trading partner with Israel. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Hey, Schultzman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have online Professor Jennifer Kaplan, who is the department chair of Judaic Studies at the University of Cincinnati, has written a book called Funny, You Don't Look Funny, Judaism and Humor from the Silent Generation to Millennials. How are you today, Jenny? I'm doing well. How are you, Rabbi? Good. Thank God. Thank you for taking the time to come and talk about this. Let's talk first, before we do anything else, I love the title. So if you could explain <laughs> to people why I love the title. Well, I am assuming you love the title for the same reason that I did. Um, and it is a, it's a play, of course, on the old funny, you don't look Jewish uh, punchline, which has been around for God, better part of a century at this point, um, and, and has become its own uh, sort of catchphrase to the point where people can just kind of like throw that out as a line and those who are in the know, um, you know, will laugh and, and smile. So when I, when I thought about writing this book about Jewish humor and, and Jewish practice that looks a little bit different, um, I thought it would be a nice way to nod to that history uh, while looking towards the future. Okay, great. That's exactly what I was thinking. So it's, and so now, so paralleling that, continuing that, so you can't really fit into a mold what 
Jews like. There are other stereotypical Jewish things that, you know, but, but my mother, who was was Jewish, 100%, my kid, one of my kids had the 23andMe done, and she turned out to be 100% Ashkenazi, which meant that I'm 100% Ashkenazi, which meant my mother's 100% Ashkenazi, and people would mistake her for Lebanese or Italian mm-hmm. or Greek. No one ever said that she looked Jewish. Okay, she just uh, so so Jews don't necessarily have a look. So let's turn that now towards towards humor. I've done this with music with a bunch of people. It's like, could you please define Jewish music? And <laughs> it's it's a very it's like why is there air type of a thing. And I've had other people on to talk about Jewish humor per se and what makes humor Jewish. So let me ask you then that question, Jennifer Kaplan. What makes humor Jewish as opposed to, say, a Jewish humorist who might not be right. Jewish humor? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a great question. And in some ways, it's the core question. Um, and what I will say is that in the book, I make a point of not trying to stake a claim to a new definition for that. Um, I think when you go all the way back to the way that Freud wrote about Jewish humor, I think that there is truth in what he thought about it, which is that it is humor that is done by Jews for Jews. Um, But I think that there's also value in the way that more contemporary people like Joseph Telushkin, Rabbi Telushkin in particular, has written about it as being something that's done by Jews not necessarily for Jews, but that includes what he calls Jewish sensibilities, which are like family stress and anti-Semitism and assimilation um, and financial worries. Um, so, like, I think that there's, I think there's something to be said about both of those approaches that think that Jewish humor has everything to do with the identity of the humorist and has maybe something to do with the audience, but the more I study it and the more I look, especially at contemporary Jewish humor, the more I think that Jewish humor can actually be defined as a, a style of humor, almost like we would talk about slapstick or we can talk about, um, you know, puns or like different, different modes of humor that Jewish humor is actually a way of, it comes from a humorist who has positioned themselves outside of the societal mainstream and is being satiric and critical in a certain way. Uh, And what's really interesting for me is that if you think about Jewish humor as being a style, then it, it's not necessarily, the case that it has to be done by Jews anymore. Um, and, and I think that that gives, especially when I look in the last like 20 years, um, I think that gives interesting nuance to the question. That is interesting. So you're saying Jewish humor might be considered a genre of humor? I'm, I, I remain intrigued by that possibility. The thing that really got me thinking that direction was Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Um, and I was like, this is, this is Jewish revenge fantasy. This, you know, this is Jewish alternative history. And I, and then I caught myself and I was like, but Quentin Tarantino isn't Jewish. So obviously it can't be Jewish anything. Um, but every time I rewatched the movie, 
I couldn't shake the sense that he was that he was doing something that I wanted to define as Jewish regardless of his identity. And so that kind of like got me thinking in that direction. There, there's a movie, um, you probably know, The First Go Kid. Sure. A Gene Wilder movie. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of people talk about that as a Jewish, as Jewish humor. And I look back at the fact that the like writer and director aren't Jewish. So if that movie can be Jewish humor and if Inglorious Bastards seems like it's some sort of like Jewish something, um, it, you know, it's very dark humor. Um, then I don't know. It, it, it pushes me to think about Jewish humor as a genre it, after a century of Jews, American Jews doing this kind of humor, like maybe it has taken on its own momentum. Okay, let's let's follow up along with that. So in Jewish music, so Jewish music is identified as for its Jewish quality for the like really an overriding characteristic is that it's played in a minor key. Which, yeah. if you ask anybody, any musicologist will tell you that major keys are bright and happy and upbeat, and right. minor keys are somber. And are the Siberian rhythm. winter? Yes, and morose. Yeah. And so, so Jewish music, for the most part, is written in minor keys. Even the happy songs are written in minor keys, so they still have that that somberness to them. So, would you say then? I mean, one of the things that I learned way back when. Um, I took a course uh, in in school that was entitled Satire and Humor. I thought it was going to be a funny course. It was probably one of the hardest courses I ever took because what we would do is we would say for we would watch a movie and then everybody would laugh and then the teacher would play the movie again. And then we had to write down why it is that we laughed when we laughed when we laughed at what we laughed at. Yeah. And that was like really hard. Like what made that funny? So – when we're talking now about the uh, the the tone or the timbre of of Jewish humor, so people that were in the shtetl who were making jokes were making jokes because they were trying not to get killed or dis or or, or expelled or starve or something like that. And would you say then nowadays? I don't even know where I'm going really with this question, but. As we've progressed, and you progress it through the the generations from the first wave of immigrants all the way up through millennials and Gen Zers, that because our perils haven't have shifted, and what we worry about has shifted, therefore the humor has shifted. Yeah, well, I mean that's exactly it. So, like the the question that everybody wants to ask, and when you watch you know documentaries about Jewish humor. Everybody asks this question. It's like, are Jews as funny today as they were in generations past? And like when they do these documentaries and they ask comedians that, the comedians all say no, um, with the exception of Mark Maron. Mark Maron is the only one I've heard say, yes, I think Jews are just as funny now as they used to be. Um, everybody else says, no, no, the old Jews were funnier than we are because we are comfortable we are not imperiled, we are, uh, you know, happy and mainstream and whatever. Um, So, like, those are the two, uh, I guess, opposing camps of what is Jewish humor. If Jewish humor is humor that's done by Jews, then 
it's going to change as Jewish cultural contexts change and as Jews are no longer as stressed out or imperiled or existentially threatened as they were, then, then their humor is going to look different. Or if Jewish humor is the humor that comes out of being threatened and being on the margins and being imperiled, then that's more towards the idea that it's a genre and maybe it's less likely that Jews are all of the ones doing that now because they don't feel that same threat, but somebody else does. So, I, I mean, those are the, exactly the two poles of it. Like, is, is Jewish humor changing because Jews have changed, or is Jewish humor a thing, and who's doing it is changing? Okay, our guest today again is Jennifer Kaplan. She has written a book called Funny, You Don't Look Funny, Judaism and Humor from the Silent Generation to Millennials. So it's about American humor specifically because there is a whole other genre of uh, humor when you go outside of America. Russians yep. don't laugh at what Americans laugh at for whatever reason. They're really heavy into irony. And the joke, the Russian jokes mm -hmm. that, I, that I tell people, I tell people Russian jokes that I've heard from Russians that they've translated to me. And I think they're funny because I appreciate the irony. But Americans just don't get them. So it's like, where's the joke? So I'm not going to tell one now. But anyway, so I have done, <laughs> Jennifer Kaplan, I've done my own research in this subject in preparation for today. I have uh, children that span the generations from millennials through to Gen Zers. And I asked, okay. I asked them, do you think the Marx Brothers are funny? And all of them said, yes. And then I asked, do you think the joke about it has the punchline, he had a hat, you know that joke? <laughs> yes. Okay. I, I tell that joke whenever anybody asks me to tell my favorite Jewish joke. That's the one I tell. Okay. So that joke, my grandmother, who was an immigrant, and my mother, who is a, uh, from the great generation, would guffaw. I yep. find the joke funny. I don't guffaw. I kind of like give you like a hearty smile and say, yeah, I can appreciate that one because I grew up with my mother and my grandmother. My kids don't think that joke is funny. So yep. what happened? Where where did things it's like? So we want to say the comedians are different, but it's because they have to if they're trying to sell tickets and you know be popular. So they have to tell jokes that their audience is going to think are funny. So they're not going to tell the I had he had a hat joke because they're not thinking that's funny. So how did that happen, Jennifer Kaplan? That happens, I think, um, and, and I think it's part and parcel of everything else we've been talking about. The reason why I single that joke out. When people ask me, you know, what's your favorite Jewish joke? I don't necessarily think it's the funniest, but it's my favorite because I think it highlights so many things about Jewish humor and the tradition of Jewish humor. And one of them is this like Jewish inability to be content. And, you know, so even in the face of miraculous salvation, there needs to be that underlying complaint. There needs to be that that little twist at the end. Um, and that, you know, when we're talking about contemporary Jews not having that same feeling of existential threat or, or crisis, um, I think that's part of it. I, I don't necessarily think that, and, uh, you know, hopefully your children do not feel threatened or discontented. You know, I hope your children are happy and feel well-adjusted and accepted in their place of work and accepted in their schools. And, and, you know, I hope that for them, but that's a very different 
mentality and view of the world. And it's not the mentality and view of the world that your, you know, mother, grandmother who would guffaw at that joke, they had a much more real experience of Jewish existential threat than you did or that I do. So we can smile at that joke because we understand elements of it, but it's not necessarily like hitting us on that deep belly laugh kind of place. And, and for your children, for, you know, for those generations, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't ring true anymore. They don't recognize that, that, that feeling. Um, and, and so I think that is precisely emblematic of this evolution of American Jews. Okay. So again, our guest today is Jennifer Kaplan. We're talking about her newest book, Funny, You Don't Look Funny, Judaism and Humor from the Silent Generation to Millennials. Now, you break the book up, and I love the way you do this, in, from, in time periods basing on generations. So there's a generation basically that of Jews who came to this country who had the vivid memories of the old country, which for the most part, people move from one place to another. They pick themselves up and move because where they are is just too impossible to continue living there. So they have to pick themselves up as refugees, basically, and come to a new place. So they have that refugee memory is imprinted in them. Then there's the Great Depression generation where, okay, they have their parents that are telling them about what happened in the shtetl. But in the meantime, they're living through a depression, which is forms the uh, the basis of their psyche the growing up my parents mm-hmm. were, were products of the, genera- the the depression then you have the boomers who are you know my generation and uh, all this like explosion of 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 americanism on the jewish world then leading into the gen x's gen the millennials and the gen zers so yeah. in, in your mind, is this like a, a natural progression or did you really, this is like, you put this on a graph. How did you come up with, because it's, it's brilliant that you came up with this. I never thought about it in such terms, but how did you come up with it? Um, it was an interesting process. So uh, portions of the book started out as my dissertation um, from Syracuse University, but the dissertation was not organized um, around the generations, the dissertation was organized around the tripartite, three-legged stool, Torah, God, and Israel um, concept that people, you know, discuss in terms of Jewish culture. Um, and so I, I had the I had the dissertation structured around, like, humor that has to do with, with Torah or with scripture or text, at least, um, and humor that has to do with God and humor that has to do with Israel. Um, and that, that, was, that was fine, and that worked for the dissertation, but as, as I was doing the research, what I really found was a more interesting story to me and an unexpected story was this generational shift. Um, and, and it's interesting that you described it the way that you did, because I think that you pegged onto almost exactly the same thing that I found interesting, which is the, the shift from generations of Jews who identified with their Jewish cohort two generations of Jews who identified with their larger American cohort. Um, you know, so we traditionally we've talked about the first generation Jews, the second generation Jews, um, to some extent, the third generation. Uh, and, and that silent generation chapter where I kind of get going with the analysis, those are those, those kids of the depression, the, the interwar kids. Um, so that's, uh, you know, Mel Brooks and Joseph Heller and Woody Allen and Philip Roth and, and all of those guys. Um, and 
none of them would identify as silent generation. They've probably never even heard the term. Um, but they may identify as second generation Jews, which is how we've always talked about them. When we get to the baby boom, though, suddenly there's this real cultural shift where Jews start to think of themselves in terms of their American generation and not their Jewish generation. And in the book, I argue that by the time we then get to Gen X, that is entirely shifted, um, that you're going to meet very few Gen X American Jews who are going to describe their generational cohort in Jewish terms. They're going to describe themselves as Gen X. Um, And so I, I really saw that as an interesting way of looking at the Americanization process and the way that Jews begin to think about their identity, kind of moving from being a Jewish American to an American Jew. Like, what do you put first in the hyphen? Um, And we don't see much description of people as Jewish American anymore. We usually see the phrase American Jewish. Um, So I I sort of saw that as, as the interesting thing that came up. And I didn't expect to see that, but that's that's what the data started to tell me as I was looking at it. Okay, interesting. And now, paralleling because we do this, I've been doing it through the whole interview already. Paralleling music to to humor, Jewish music to Jewish humor. Yeah. So, Jewish music, we said at the onset, is is written in a minor key, but there is the phenomenon of the last twenty five years where people who identify themselves as Jewish musicians are singing, my wife and kid calls it the Las Vegas style music. And so it's written, <laughs> it's written in a major key. And a lot of the stuff that's coming out, wedding music and uh, the upbeat music, it's all, it's all major key at this point. So yeah. is, would you say the same thing is happening in Jewish humor, that the minor key, that somberness, that, that uh, melancholy, which is the, the, the undertone of Jewish humor, at some time in the future is just going to fall out and we're just going to have this like new Jewish humor? Um, to some extent, maybe. One of the things that I think remains true about humor, though, is that humorists, almost all position themselves at the edge, whatever, whatever that humorists think the edge is, the edge of social acceptability, the edge of how far you can push satire and critique. Um, and so since comedians and when we're, and, and I'm mostly thinking about like um Stand-ups and that, not not necessarily people who are writing for sitcoms, because that the sitcoms are going into a major key. I can definitely agree with you on that. Sitcom writing has dropped the minor key um, and has gone all happy, upbeat. The good place is brilliant, but it is not in a minor key. Um, but like stand-ups, I think that because there's always going to be that place for comedians who see themselves as that prophetic voice in the wilderness that is trying to shine a light on everything that's wrong with society. Um, I think that there is always going to be a place in humor that holds on to the minor key. Very interesting. Fascinating. So um, just an example, my, and maybe you want to comment on it. My, I have a daughter who's, um, who, who really wants to be, recognizes a stand-up comedian she's got a day job but she's actually out she's on the west coast and she does gigs and she puts together shows and whatnot i i saw her once and her opening joke was hi my name is gaula which happens to be her name 
And my <laughs> sisters, my, my siblings are named Tzivya, Bracha, Hinda, Adel, Shira, and then there's my brother, Alex. Okay? And that's the joke. He says, how come the guy gets like the normal name? So that's, that's sort of like, yeah. that's, that's the way she, she opens up her, her act. So she's, she's, uh, she's like borderline cusp millennial Z or so. So talk, talk about that type of a thing then, please. Yeah, that's, um, that's always, I think, been one of the registers of Jewish humor is this space that kind of moves between is it self-deprecating or is it cultural deprecating? So, uh, you know, stand, it, it's, it's sort of self-deprecating in a sense, um, but it's maybe more deprecating of you, her parents, the people who chose her name and, and the culture from which her name and her sister's names come um, and and that I think has been very um, has been very common in Jewish humor, and is one of the things that I actually say that Gen Z is doing more millennials to some extent, and then Gen Z even more is moving into away from the self-deprecating and into the culture deprecating, um, which is not something that Silent Generation and um, baby boom comedians were super comfortable with having just like lived through the experience of the Holocaust. Um, they were not super comfortable with humor that like seemed to be finding flaw in Jewish collective identity um, that understandably they were nervous about that. Um, but the, the further we've gotten from the Holocaust, the more distance we've gotten from the Holocaust um, millennial and Gen Z comedians seem much more comfortable making fun of Jewish stuff. Um, for like existing. Uh, so, you know, I think that's a sort of humor where it's like, it's a joke about myself um, or herself in this case, but it's also not really something that's my fault. So it's more a joke about other people um, that I think that that's a really common move in, in Jewish humor is that, that kind of gray line between it's self-deprecating humor, but it's actually more externally deprecating. Interesting. Fascinating. My, it just occurred to me, my mother did not think that my mother thought that Woody Allen was not funny. She would, she just, she would cringe at his jokes. It's, it's so. Hence the idea. She being a, a, a from the great generation. He being a baby boomer. He yeah. being that the self-deprecating. She called it Jew-hating humor, actually. And uh, yep, I mean, he got that a lot. Philip Roth got that a lot. Yeah, indeed. This is fascinating. We could go on, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Our guest, again, has been Professor Jennifer Kaplan, University of Cincinnati. One thing that always amazes me is how is it that somebody who is a professor at the University of Cincinnati, which there is something called University of Cincinnati Press, their book is published by Wayne State University Press, and the professor yeah. at University of, of Wayne State University, they had to go they had to go to Columbia Press to get their book published. So I don't understand. That's for a different topic, but it's Wayne State University Yeah, we can Press. have that conversation in another show. It's, I would think that University of Cincinnati would want to publish your things, but... Okay, we're not going to go there. Um, uh, the book is, again, Funny You Don't Look Jewish, Judaism and Humor from Silent Generation to Millennials. It's not a guffaw book. We're not laughing at it, but this is a real good analysis of why things are funny or how things are funny. And uh, are you, we planning, I always ask this every guest who's ever written a book, are you planning a book number two, Jenny? I am. I'm actually on leave all of next year to write book number two, uh, which is currently titled Ask Jewish Identity and Comic Books. Oh, cool. 
That's yep. awesome. And uh, I'm waiting for my autographed copy. Thank you so much. We just got to wrap it up. <laughs> we wish you continued success and only good things, Jennifer Kaplan. Thank you, Rabbi Finland. Okay, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herschel Finman, here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. We have some really good music during this next segment for you. Cutting edge, new releases, some new stars, some new, new up-and-coming people. I don't know if they're stars yet, but they want to be. And I think they will be up for your listening pleasure. This is Udi Damari, who's an Israeli, who's been around for a while, has just breaking out into the American scene together with Avram Fried. And the song is called Elohim Shali, My God. Elohim Shali, Ani Ohevotcha, Veshamati Shegamata Ohev, Kiachare Hakol. אני הבן שלך, לא משנה מה יהיה. אתה כל יום נותן לי כוח לשמוח, לשיר ולהודות לך. אני כל כך רוצה להרגיש את כל הטוב שלך, את כל מה שאומרים עליך. כל הימים לא יחפו את כל האהבה שלך. אז תחבק אותי, אל תעזוב אותי, כי בלעדיך אין לי כלום. Shall we? 
has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800 603 1813. It's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Herschel Finman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. This is also a new group. I like it. These are, this, is, this is a very interesting uh, group. Uh, I don't know if you can call them a group because it's, they call themselves a duo, but they have a whole group behind them. They're uh, also Israelis, but they're uh, Hasidic Israelis. I believe they're stolen or Hasidim, looking at the uh, the videos. Their name's David Frank, who plays violin, and Natan David Ettinger, who plays clarinet. And uh, this is a Dave Tarris arrangement for their Galater Bulger. Thank you. 
the Glotter Bulger. I hope you really like that. Up next, also brand new, and this is a new group. There also is really just trying to break into the American scene, and we hope that uh, our playing them here will do that. The names are Avi Ilson, which is Israeli, but probably the Ilson is a French name, so he's probably his family is originally from France, originally from like Tunisia. And Itzrak Dadia, which is probably also some North African name, but they're Israeli. The, the uh, tune is called Bein Hashvilim, Between the Paths. And the basic idea is, is no matter how tight things get, well, God's with me. Let's Let's do it just for you. בין חלומות למציאות, בין ימים לאין הראות, בין השורפת לעבר אל הקריאות. אין המולניות, יש עבדים ויש חירות, ושביל זהב אחד בדרך ללא
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. The portion of the week that we'll be reading this week in the synagogue on Sabbath morning on Shabbos is the double portion of Chukas Balak, which is in chapter 19 of the book of Exodus and following. The portion, as I said at the onset of the show, is just rife with stories. First of all, there's the introduction of the Paraduma, the red cow, which there's a whole reason why that's here, which we're not going into. We've done that in the past, followed by the death of Miriam, followed by the well drying up, followed by Moses talking to the, not talking, but rather hitting, getting told he's not going into Israel, followed by the death of, of Aaron, followed by the accession of Eliezer as the high priest, followed by a couple of wars against Sihon and Og, and uh, then the, the uh, portion of Balak concerns the famous stories of, of Bilam and the talking donkey and how he tried to curse the Jewish people and the eventuality of the Jewish men getting sucked into the whole Tadadam at Baal Pa'or. We're going to focus on not a very good week for Tzaddikim because Miriam and Aaron both die in the portion and Moses is told that he's going to die. When Miriam died, so the well dried up. When Aaron died, the cloud of glory disappeared. Indicating that why was it that the Jews had this well traveling with them? It was an amazing thing, this big, huge rock, and it would roll with them. And when they needed to stop, it would stop and then... 13 rivers of water would emit, be emitted from this huge rock. It looked like a, it was a big, a massive boulder, like six feet in circumference, with 13 holes in it, and the water would come out of the holes. And then there was the cloud of glory, which was this whole camouflage thing. We talked about this in, in the past. So Miriam, because of Miriam, so it says in Miriam's merit did they have the, the well, and Aaron's merit, they had the cloud. Now, what did Miriam do? So Miriam was, well, first of all, she led the, the, the women's movement in Israel at the time. As we see that when the Jews crossed the sea and they were singing the song at the sea. So it says at the end of the song of the sea that Miriam took the women. And unlike the men who did it all a cappella, 
Miriam took up with uh, tambourines and drums and, and musical instruments. The women, these women knew how to do stuff. I guess they weren't making bricks, so they learned how to play instruments in, and brought their instruments with them when they went left Egypt. And she led the, the same song. As in, and that song was divinely inspired, so you see she had some divine stories. So she's the leader of the women. What was her day job? She was a midwife. She helped women give birth. And one of the major, major occupations of the midwife is to make sure that the mother is okay. So her deal is in caring and compassion. And therefore, when they're in the desert, what is it that anybody in the desert is worried about? I mean, people that live in Israel. Israel is essentially a desert climate. It's absolutely 100% rely, reliant on water falling from the sky, which would mean it's not a desert per se. But if it doesn't, it turns into a desert. And so Miriam was in charge of making that because of her compassion that the Jews would always have water. Aaron. Aaron is referred to as Ishachesed, the man of kindness. He was Johnny on the spot for everybody. Oyev Shalom, he loved peace. Right of Shalom, pursued peace. Oyev is called Brios and Makar from the Torah. He loved every creature and tried to bring it closer to God. His deal, he knew every single person in the camp on a first name basis. That's, all, that's quite a lot of people. You're talking 600,000 families. Now, so you have in an area the size of, let's say, Southfield or Livonia, for those people living outside the Detroit area, so that's six miles by six miles. That's not, it's not very big. Having like four or five million people, how many people live in Southfield and Livonia? 40,000, 50,000? Imagine cramming four or five million people. There's not that. <laughs> there's eight hundred thousand people that live in Detroit, which is uh, twice the size, four times the size of uh, Southfield and Livonia. People get on top of each other. They get like you know, the, you know, anybody who's been to New York City knows. There's way too many people that live in New York City. New York City is made for maybe maximum a million and a half, two million people, and there's nine million people there. So it's just way too many people, and it creates this pressure cooker environment. And there's crime, and people don't say hello to each other in the street, and it's considered rude if you say some to hello to somebody in the street in New York City. It's considered rude because you've invaded my space. Aaron was the one who made sure that even though there's all these millions of people crammed in this little tiny space, it was like living in the suburbs. It was like everybody had their picket fence and their garages. It was like, you know, their driveways, their two cars, the whole business. That was Aaron's job. He died. Clouds disappeared. Now they were exposed. They got attacked. Moses was able to bring them back because what was Moses's deal? Moses's deal was Torah, connecting to the will and wisdom of God and bringing the will and wisdom of God down here. 
and bringing it and putting it into concrete terms. In other words, you do what God wants, God will do what you want. Speaking of wanting, I'd like you to go look at uh, RabbiFinman.com when you get a chance, if you're not listening on RabbiFinman.com to this podcast, and peruse what we've put there. We're always updating it, putting up new stuff every week. There's, there's new stuff for you to check out. And there's also the very important donation page. We, Baruch Hashem, we're done with May. We're almost done with June, which is good because we're up to the uh, next, I think it's the last week of June as far as the show goes. So we're almost, almost, almost. We just need a little more push, and then we don't have to worry about June. And if we get July paid for, I don't have to make an appeal. So you've been listening now for uh, over 50 minutes. You like the show? You know, show your appreciation. Give a small donation. Give a large donation. Whatever it is you like to do, give it a one-time deal. Give it a multi-time deal. You can uh, send it via PayPal. You can send it via mail to 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Forendale, Michigan, 48220. Just send it. You'll be happy. We'll be happy. Everybody else listening will be happy. The Almighty be happy because you're keeping this very important program. It's been on the air for 29 years through listeners like yourself. Do that today. Story goes back to the 1950s. When the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe arrived in the United States from war-torn Europe in 1940, one of the things that he had, what he set up was, is that the yeshiva students who had off in the summertime shouldn't waste their time, but rather he sent them off to various places where there were, where cities where there were no rabbis, for example, and the idea to be is to spread Judaism there. They brought books with them and mezuzahs, and they had led classes, and they spent. This is how they would spend their summer. It was called Merkos Shlichus. Merkos is the name of the organization, which is, means the Central Organization for Education, and Shlichus means on the mission. So it happened, and this continued and it spread out. Now there are, uh, I don't know, I, I personally, in 1983, 82, I spent a summer in. Idaho, visiting all the Jewish communities in Idaho. There's no, there were really not too many Jewish communities. I don't know what's doing there now. I know there's a Chabad house in Boise. But there were 60 Jews in, in Boise and, and like 10 in Pocatello and a couple in Idaho Falls. And there was one in, uh, what was the name of that, that I don't remember, the uh, the ski resort that... Uh, that uh, Gerald Ford used to ski at. There was like one Jew there. So we, we found them all. So there was a couple of a couple of or a couple of students that got sent to Oklahoma to Tulsa and you're talking in 1950s and they everybody when whenever a person would whatever group would went out they would write a report as to what they were able to accomplish so I I did this. We wrote it in depth. We kept like a diary. What did we do today? It, it was uh, by the time it was all written up, it was like thirty pages long. And what did we get back for an answer? Thank you, which was that's great. So, but in the fifties, so the students themselves would go in with a private audience with the rabbi because it was the world the the, uh, the there weren't that many people hanging around Lubavitch at that time, and would report to the rabbi. So they reported that they were in Oklahoma. They didn't accomplish anything. They didn't meet anybody. They didn't see anybody. They didn't sell a book. They didn't talk to anybody about Judaism. Nothing. And it was they, they bemoaned the fact that maybe going to Oklahoma was a waste of time. 
So the Rebbe opened up his desk drawer, which the, which there's many stories with it. Just so happens that the Rebbe would open up a drawer and take out a letter. Just, just so happens. And he said, let me show you. So he got a letter from a woman who says that she was looking out the window and she saw these two yeshiva students walking in the street. And they reminded her of her grandfather who had come from, from the old country in Europe. And it made her reminiscent of what her grandfather was. And she decided that that moment that she's going to keep Shabbos. So the point of this story is, is we don't know what it is, what you're accomplishing just by walking down the street, which means that what? You have to, uh, <laughs> you always have to be on, on your best because people are looking. That's going to do it for us. We hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.